All right, Luke chapter 5, as we continue this vision conversation, we're remembering who we are and, and what we're doing here, right? Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 27, and this morning I'm going to read, at least for this section, from the New Living Translation. Typically we're, we're in the NIV, for those of you who are kind of uh, into that kind of stuff. Um, but today in the New Living Translation, because I love the way that it, it sort of uh, uh, paints the picture of Jesus in this scene. Later, as Jesus left the town, he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Later, Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor, and many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with them. But the Pharisees and their teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples. If you were here a couple weeks ago, this is, should sound very reminiscent of a scene that we see later on in Luke chapter 15. Right? And we saw that the Greek word for that grumbling, that complaining, is where we actually get our word diabolical. Right? So this is not just a little like, oh, blah, blah, blah. like there, there's some intent behind this complaining. Why do you eat and drink with such scum? Why do you eat and drink with such scum? Jesus answered them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. Father, we pray now that you would take all the stuff that we bring in to this space this morning, the good, the things that we celebrate, the challenges, the things that we are anxious about, nervous about, worrying about. We ask that you would hold all of that for us here for these moments that we are together so that we can be fully present to you, to your spirit, which is moving and active and speaking, to each other as we grow in relationship with one another. And God, as we always pray on Sunday, would you, would you give us the courage today to respond in whatever ways we may need to respond? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So again, uh, we're now in week three of a sort of five-part conversation on our vision, who we are and why we are here, right? Tackling these big questions about who we are and why we are here. Why are we here? Uh, we've been sort of grounding that part of the conversation in this quote from Tim Keller who wrote, in 2,000 years, we have never learned how to do mission in a place that was post-Christian, meaning we've moved on from a Christian-centered, church-centered worldview. We've never learned how to do mission in a post-Christian place rather than pre-Christian. If you are in ministry, if you are a part of a church community in 2024, it is going to take all of your life, everything you have, to help the church figure out how to do this. This is our purpose. This is our why. 
We are on a quest to reimagine church and mission in a post-Christian culture so that spiritual explorers can discover, and in many cases rediscover, the good news of Jesus. And we are doing this, and we will continue to do this, and I think the thing for us this year is that there are some invitations out there for us to lead. And I've said this the last couple of weeks, I don't mean this to be critical or to throw shade at anyone. I don't know that there is another church in our immediate area that is actually doing this, that is taking this quest seriously. Which isn't to say that other churches don't care about God or people or the mission or anything like that. But this is the future. This is where things are going. We are becoming a post-Christian culture, and it's going to require us to change, to reimagine how we do church and mission in that context. And I believe that God has, has preserved, prepared, and equipped us not just to do that, but to lead the church in this mission. That's why we're here. Now, who we are is, is really the guts of the conversation. We've been spending the last couple of weeks looking at some of our core values. Last week, the value better together, right? We are better together, and this comes from a deep theological conviction about the nature of God, this truth that God exists as relationship, as community, right, as Trinity, three in oneness, Father, Son, and Spirit, this community of perfect, self-giving love. And because this is who God is, it, it, it leads God to create, to extend that community, to open that community up to us as human beings created in his image. This has always been God's intention, as we just sang a few moments ago, shalom, right relationship with him and with each other. And the good news of the big story of Scripture is that even after we mess it all up, even after we reject that relationship and go on our own, God continues to pursue us continues to invite us back. We say it this way, God is putting his family back together. God is putting his family back together. And so this is why this next value that we're talking about today is so critical to our mission. We say it here, or we say it this way here at Discovery, we want to be a church for the rest of us. A church for the rest of us. Now, here's what I mean by that. I want to tell a story, and then we're going to walk through not just Luke 5, but, but actually the whole book of Luke. So get ready. <laughs> we won't be here that long. Don't worry. I want to tell a story and then walk through Luke 5 and kind of show how Jesus does this. Some of you may know that, that Amy and I, we lived in Boston for seven years. Uh, we moved there um, so Amy could go to grad school. We ended up sticking around for a while. I had the privilege of working with a campus ministry, and then we also were a part of a uh, of a church plant called Reunion. And it was during this time that I had the opportunity to journey with a guy named John. We uh, affectionately nicknamed him Cuban John because he's, his name was John and he was Cuban. Uh, John moved to Boston for grad school and his program started in January. So he was born and raised in Florida, 
moves to Boston in January to start his grad program, and it didn't take very long, maybe a couple of weeks, two months tops into this experience, and he deeply regretted the whole thing. Uh, super frustrated with his grad program, wasn't making friends, hadn't found community, and it was also really cold. And, and it got to the point for him where he, he goes for a walk on a Sunday morning in, I'll just say, late February. And he's like, what have I done? What did I, like, why did I make this decision? Why did I come here? Have I blown it? This was supposed to be kind of a restart moment for him. He's, he's questioning everything, even whether life is worth living. But it's really cold. So he's like, I can't, I, I don't want to, don't want to end here in the frozen tundra of Boston. So he goes into a, a lobby of a hotel. And it just so happens that this was the hotel that our church was gathering in at that time. And so he walks into the lobby and he sees that the gathering is happening and he goes and he sits in one of the back rows and he meets God. Has one of those experiences where, where there's just this very real, profound encounter with the living God. After the gathering, he met uh, some other people, including myself. We went and got coffee that week. I learned that John had had one church experience before that. And it was an extremely negative experience uh, that I'll tell you more about here in just a moment. But he had never been back since then. And, and so from that point on, he just kept hanging out and getting more involved and started doing stuff. In fact, he actually became a part of the sound team. Never underestimate the transformative power of the sound team. Can I get an amen? The, the main hang-up that John had with church was communion. And the experience that he had had at that, that previous church earlier in his life is he had been told, you can't take communion here. And, and he had even had the experience of of they, they sort of did the like lineup thing. Like he was in line and somebody came and like pulled him out of line and told him to sit down. You are not welcome at the table because you haven't done this, this, and this, and we know what you do, and blah, 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 like all this stuff. And that was it. He was done with church at that point. So he'd been around for a little while and he'd been really like hesitant to come to the table, even though it was open and we invited him every week. He was hesitant to do so. But then one week he just felt that prompting of, I got to go. I got to go to the table. And the way we did it there is, I mean, similar to here, we had different stations around the room, but it was actually held by someone. It was served to you. And so John gets up, and he's, he's in line waiting to come to one of those stations, and he's, like, sweating. He's like, someone, like, they're going to pause the gathering, and they're going to single me out. Like, he's just having all of this reaction, right? This is going to be terrible. Someone's going to tell me I'm not supposed to be here. But it didn't happen, right? And he made it to the table. And for the first time in his life, he took the bread and the wine, the body and the blood of Jesus. Which is a very cool part of the story, but it gets even better from there. John would actually go on to do some pretty awesome things. He helped us lead small groups. Uh, uh, he actually helped our church launch a second site in a different 
part of the city. But my favorite moment was, uh, was one Sunday where he was invited to actually be one of the servers for communion. Think about it for a minute. This, this man who had been told, you can't participate in this, is now being invited to share it with others. And uh, John, I actually got to baptize him. I don't know. Oh, man, there I am. I was young once. <laughs> uh, we actually got to baptize John. But again, my favorite moment was when he was, when he was serving communion. And he, you know, he's kind of a bigger guy, uh, he had, he had a big beard, kind of gruff uh, persona. But that Sunday morning, he's standing there holding that plate and that cup. And, and the man just breaks down. I mean, just a good old ugly cry sob. The body of Christ. The blood of Christ. Again, from... You can't be here. You don't get to do this. You're not allowed to participate to actually offering it to others. When I think about John's story, this is everything that we want discovery to be. This is everything we want our church to be. This is what we mean when we say church for the rest of us. This movement from death to life. From explorer to guide, from exclusion, you can't participate in this to inclusion, to serving, to making space for other people to experience the good news that you have experienced. That is church for the rest of us. Now, I want to, bri I want to briefly trace this theme throughout the book of Luke. So if you have your Bible, come back to Luke chapter 5 with me, but we're going to flip around a bunch. So in Luke chapter 5, before the scene that we read just a moment ago, Jesus heals a leper and a paralytic. Two people who would, have, who would have been seen, who would have been excluded from the community and who would have been seen as unclean. Right? Something happened, you did something, you sinned, you blew it somehow, or your parents did, or, or somewhere along the line there was some big sin involved, and that's why you're in this condition. And so therefore, we need you to stay outside of the community because we got to keep things pure and holy on the inside. Right? And Jesus heals these two people and brings them in. Then he calls Levi, the tax collector and notorious sinner, to be his disciple. Luke chapter 6, Jesus pronounces blessings on the poor and woes on the rich which is a major inversion. Because in that time and place, the, the, the thought was if you were rich, you were blessed by God. And if you were poor, you must have done something wrong. Again, you sinned, you blew it. You, it something is excluding you. Something you did is excluding you from being a part of this community. Jesus says it's a flip. Chapter 7. He commends the faith of a Roman ar army officer. In fact, he says th this Roman army officer has more faith than anybody I've encountered since doing ministry. This is the epitome, embodiment of the oppressor. The Roman Empire. Right? One of, the, one of the military leaders of the Roman Empire. I've never seen faith like that. Chapter 8, Jesus goes to Gentile territory 
And he heals a man possessed by a legion of demons. And there's all, there's all kinds of stuff going on in that story where Jesus is crossing boundaries and doing things you're not supposed to do. Chapter 10, Jesus makes a Samaritan the hero of one of his most famous stories. Luke 11, Jesus lights into the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. This is one of their first like, really direct confrontations. He lets them have it for being hypocrites. You say this, you preach this, but you act this way. It looks really good on the outside, but on the inside it's rotten. And things much stronger than that. Chapter 14, he has another tense interaction with the Pharisees. Again, around the issue of healing someone with leprosy, this leads to Jesus telling a couple of very radical stories about throwing parties. And when you throw parties, this is who you need to invite, and, and, and this is who's going to end up coming and being a part of it. And there's this whole, like, the humble will be exalted, and the exalted will be humbled. And again, inverting everything. Luke 15, Jesus eats with more sinners, generates more grumbling. In response, he tells more stories, including the one from which that song that we just sang comes from, right? This good father who welcomes his son back. Chapter 16, Jesus has more conflict with the Pharisees. It leads to them sneering at him. Right, again, this strong language, like, we, we cannot get on board with what you're up to, Jesus. Chapter 17, Jesus heals yet another round of lepers. Chapter 18, he exalts a widow and a tax collector at the expense of the Pharisees. You see why he got in trouble? You see, you see a pattern developing here? And then this all culminates before he, he heads into Jerusalem. He, the whole way that Luke is organized, it really starts in Luke 9, and he kind of follows this thread all the way to chapter 19. It says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. He knew what he was there to do. I got to get to Jerusalem. I got to get to the cross. But it's this long and kind of winding road to get there through 10, 11 chapters. And it all culminates with him going to the house of Zacchaeus. Right, Zacchaeus, that wee little man who climbed a tree. Again, people get upset. What is he doing? How can he go eat with this guy? Jesus says, I have come to seek and save the lost. What I want us to see this morning is this. Everywhere Jesus goes, everywhere Jesus goes, he is widening the circle. He's widening the circle of belonging. And I want, again, if that list is still up there, I mean, look at it. This is not, hey, let's go do outreach to Samaritans. Right? It's not about picking a group of people and trying to see if we can, like, reach them. It's everywhere he goes. It's lepers and paralytics and tax collectors and a Roman officer and a Gentile guy who's full of demons. And on and on it goes. Everywhere Jesus goes, he's widening the circle. We have a human tendency to want to shrink the circle. And certainly this was a major part of what was going on at that time. 
this idea that we need to, we need to draw a very small circle, keep it pure, and, and try to keep anything that might taint it outside of it. Now, the interesting thing about what Jesus does here in, this, in the book of Luke is it's, none of this is a surprise. He stood up, one of his very first public appearances, and he says, this is what I'm going to do. Luke chapter 4, he stands up in his home church. He quotes the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. None of this was a secret. None of this was a surprise. Everywhere Jesus goes, he widens the circle. Again, in his day, that story had gotten lost, this truth that God has always been about putting his family back together. From Genesis 12 to the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah, if you fast forward the story to Revelation, it's the main theme all throughout Scripture. God is putting his family back together. He wants to restore shalom. Right relationship with him and with each other and with his creation. Over time, if you go back to Genesis 12, the people of Israel were chosen to be a blessing. They were chosen to help invite other people into that circle of belonging. But over time, that had become, again, this, like, we've got to tighten it up, we've got to keep it pure so that God will be pleased with us. And every time a challenge came, whether that was exile or Roman occupation, the solution was to exclude people in the name of purity to try to please God. But God was not pleased with that. As Jesus makes very clear, as the Old Testament prophets demonstrated, Jesus is widening the circle so that more people can experience the good news of the kingdom of God. One of my concerns is that we are doing the same thing today. That the church is repeating this pattern of we gotta keep, you know, we gotta tighten the circle. Gotta keep that out. Can't get involved with that. And meanwhile, Jesus is like, nope, it's a really big circle. Come on in. We exist, Discovery, to be a church for the rest of us. A church for people like John. Honestly, for people like me. Who maybe at some point have been told, hmm, It's not room for you. There's not space for you. We want to widen the circle of belonging and invite spiritual explorers to go on a journey of discovery with us. This is what Jesus did. And we simply want to follow Jesus in that mission. Now, our, our deacon team has done a lot more besides create a survey. All right, they have spent a lot of time thinking about 
arguing about, praying about, particularly uh, this value, many other things, but, but this one for sure. And so I wanted to invite one of them to come and share more about that. So Kayla is going to share with us a little bit from her perspective as a deacon, but also from her perspective and passion as a person. So welcome Kayla as she leads us to the table this morning. Hello. Uh, there are so many stories of Jesus upsetting the religious establishment, offending these Pharisees. And I'm really concerned that as we hear story after story, it might be easy to oversimplify things and miss an, a really important invitation for us. Um, I'm worried that when we look at the mean Pharisees, it's easy to think, I'm not like those guys. I'm not a religious leader. I don't go around yelling at people. I've been hurt in a church setting, so I can't possibly be part of the problem. Because even if we're not acting like these Pharisees, even if we're not going around telling people that they can't take communion, it actually doesn't mean that we are fully engaged with the mission of Jesus. Because his mission is actually not to simply be nice or even good. And if we are the body of Christ, and I believe that we are, then we create barriers to Jesus by not being in relationship with people who don't know him, by not making spaces for people to encounter him through us. And you can see, as Steve just demonstrated, Jesus was pursuing people by radically meeting them exactly where they were and exactly as they were. And when he encounters these people, these misfits, these outsiders, these marginalized groups, and he's in relationship with them, he demonstrates that God's kingdom is truly for everyone and Jesus is truly for everyone. But I'm worried that those of us who've been around church culture for a long time um, can miss some of that because we create cultures that are more focused on fitting in with other Christians than places where people can belong. Brene Brown says that fitting in is assessing a situation and being whoever you need to be in order to be accepted. But belonging doesn't require us to change who we are. It just requires us to be who we are. So we know that fitting in is a barrier to belonging, but I think a lot of times, and again, I'm speaking mostly to people who are kind of familiar with the Christian gig, I think we focus more on fitting in with other Christians um, than creating systems of belonging. And I can actually point to how I've done this. Um, so my childhood home was very chaotic. I had young parents, and they were limited in what they could offer me in terms of understanding and acceptance. And so I, I didn't feel like I fit in with my family or experience a sense of belonging with them. And I eventually started amplifying those differences by pursuing what I thought was a, a better life, um, clearly from a place of hurt. Um, and I had big, big questions about the world early on, and that actually led me to identify with the love of Jesus at a pretty young age. Um, and there was also a specific culture in Christianity and in churches in the late 90s and early 2000s um, that I was being formed in. 
And I didn't realize it at the time, but I conflated following Jesus with fitting in and replicating that culture. Um, I spent all of my time with, um, with people from these communities. My calendar revolved around going to or helping at all of the events. And then when I wasn't at those events, I was with people from those communities I was part of, right? Whether we're talking about churches or youth groups and then later on college fellowships. Um, I felt really safe in this bubble of people who all used the same language as me. We had the same cultural references, the same lifestyles, the same inside jokes. Um, and I had serious FOMO, if you can relate to that. And I realized over time, in hindsight, that the cost of fitting in is integrity, which we define in this community as wholeness. Um, and the reason that there's a cost there is because the parts of you that might complicate things or make other people uncomfortable have to get sort of cut off and hidden away. And in trying to fit in, I omitted or glossed over real parts of myself and my life. Um, I didn't express my curiosity or ask questions. I just consumed information and repeated answers. I didn't develop authentic views on my own. I didn't explore doubts or feelings. Um, and I wasn't a safe place for other people who were in pain or had questions. And I, I really want to make a point of that. Um, if you can't sit with your own pain or tensions, then you can't be a safe presence for other people with pain or tensions. Um, and it's also interesting to see how in choosing to fit in by trying to be like a good Christian, I was also perpetuating systems that were hurting me. And in hindsight, it's really sad and ironic to think that I was trying to follow Jesus by hanging out exclusively with other Christians. And if everyone lived like that, very few people would come to know Jesus. Uh, that's a huge barrier, and I think it's very nefarious, right, when we conflate being good with following Jesus, um, because we're not going to sit with who we're giving our presence to. My favorite line from the Levi story is when it says, Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. Many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with them. And the Pharisees get so mad because there's no like clean lines or boxes here. Levi has built a comfortable life for himself by betraying his Jewish community. And then this rabbi named Jesus uh, gives him an invitation to be with him, and he responds immediately. He was clearly waiting to belong. And Jesus went to him in his space as he was, and he said, come on, you belong with me. Uh, and then also, be, Levi's being in relationship with Jesus brings all of his gross tax collector friends in relationship with Jesus, uh, which I think is, is incredible to think about. Um, that one invitation led to all kinds of people being in contact with Jesus. And what I get from that is that we worship a God who transcends all of our petty boxes and insecurities, all of our issues around control and trying to say who's in and who's out. What I want to hone in on is that reaching explorers requires creating a culture of belonging and not fitting in. And to belong, we have to own all of the complicated and messy pieces of ourselves and make space for everyone else to show up as their own messy selves. 
To be on mission with Jesus, we have to encounter people where they are as they are. Are you making space for your coworkers, your classmates, your neighbors? Are you entering spaces where you're surrounded by tax collectors? Because if we're the body of Christ, our presence in the world matters, right? We're either gonna be bridges or barriers. And we, when we withhold our very presence from other people, that is another way of preventing people from being in communion with Jesus. And I actually, I have a vivid memory that I think illustrates this idea in a very subversive way. Um, it's Thanksgiving many years ago now, and one of my uncles is hosting. Um, so I'm bringing my very serious boyfriend to meet a lot of my family for the first time. I'm terrified, and I try to explain this cast of characters and all the dynamics to him on the drive up. And I wonder if this is going to scare him off, because I don't even feel like I fit in with my own family. And as we pull up to this house out in the middle of nowhere, I think, well, it's been a good run. I mean, you might as well end sooner than later, I guess. <laughs> Great news, the extensive dinner conversation about guns, living off the grid, what you would do in a zombie apocalypse, do not scare off my boyfriend after all. And after dinner, I go out onto the porch, where my brother and cousins are all taking shots. I haven't seen them in a long time, and the drinking game isn't my thing. And normally, I would have reacted super judgmentally and just avoided them, because, you know, being around people who are doing something you don't prefer is like a threat to your safety or something. But instead, I just stand there, and I think about how we'd grown up together, but how our lives were so different now. And instead of feeling insecure and self-conscious, I have a moment of curiosity. I, I want to be with them. And my brother walks over to me with his hands in his pockets. And he says, how's stuff with you? Only he doesn't say stuff. And I feel so grateful. It's the first question I've received all evening. And it's nice just to feel a little bit seen. So I say, stuff's good, only I don't say stuff either. <laughs> and we shoot the stuff for a couple more minutes, and then we go in for dessert. And it's a very simple story, and it may not even seem like a big deal, but my brother was such a good gift to me. He crossed over a threshold to be with his snooty sister, and he gave me this invitation to belong with his presence. And I mean, I'll be damned if that wasn't Jesus shining through a guy who is drinking and swearing. I want to see discovery become a space where anyone can believe that they belong with Jesus. America doesn't need another church of good, nice Christians. We need spaces for notorious sinners, tax collectors, and outsiders to be able to touch Jesus through our presence. And when we take communion, we celebrate a meal that Jesus shared with his followers before he died, where he took bread and he said, take and eat, this is my body. And then he offered them wine and said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It's a symbolic way in which we remind ourselves that Jesus has given us a way to belong with him through his presence. 
And as we consume these elements, let it remind us that we embody the presence and mission of Jesus with our whole beings. In Ephesians, it says God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills everything in every way. May we be the fullness of Jesus as we give away our very presence. And we have some questions as, to consider as we go to the table. Uh, who would you be offended to see Jesus eating with? Who do you define as scum? What pieces of your story do you avoid? And what kind of people do you avoid as a result? Do you regularly spend time with people who don't talk like you, dress like you, or vote like you? Does your calendar make space for you to be in relationships with the people God has put around you, your neighbors, your coworkers, people at your gym? And what is a step that you can take towards embracing more of your own story and moving towards authenticity? Please pray with me. Jesus, we thank you that in response um, to broken relationship, you broke your body to give us unbroken presence, God. Thank you um, for modeling this for us and inviting us to be part of your mission. Please help us to lay aside every barrier that we um, ourselves are facing and the barriers that we are unknowingly creating um, to being your presence in the world. Please help us to take seriously your mission to be your hands and feet on earth and to be the shalom that you want to see manifested in the world. Amen.